go to the limits of your longing. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. These are the words of Rene Carl Wilhelm Johann Josef Maria Rilke. And if it wasn't printed out in front of me, I might not be able to get all that. Better known as Rainer Maria Rilke, born December 4th, 1875. Even as I began to summarize and share a bit about Rilke, the celebrated and commemorated poet, my attempt will hardly do justice to this complicated and mystical figure. But aren't we all, I mean, most of us, complicated and multidimensional? I was just thinking the other day about how we all imbue some kind of, or many, idiosyncrasies. So anyway, not only do I get distracted from the pleasures of my own toils and research and writing about fascinating people, I get pulled into their actual creative work too, especially a poet like Rilke. I chose this beautiful gray sponge episode to be about him because he surfaced so many times in my own orbit around this great big sun. I'd rather read Rilke's writings, letters, poems, than to record an account of his life in my own words. I found it actually difficult to condense this episode into something digestible for my listeners in these brief biographical accounts I get to create. I mean, I try to keep them under 20 minutes. From the amount of information I gathered about his life, we'll see how it goes. I often introduce famous, I mean, actually lesser known names in this podcast, if you've explored any of my past episodes. Rilke, being no exception, is one of the more popular. He's the best-selling poet, or one of the best-selling poets, I guess, in the United States, even as he was born an Austrian, where most of his writings have been translated from his German texts. And that makes a big difference, actually, in those who translate. But anyway... In popular culture, Rilke is frequently quoted or referenced in television programs, motion pictures like uh, Jojo Rabbit. Actually, the uh, opening quote came from, well, they use that line as well in Jojo Rabbit. If you're not familiar with that film, it's an excellent uh, World War II account. Also, Only You, a romantic comedy with Downing Jr. and Marissa Tomei. And Igby Goes Down with Claire Danes. I think I'm going to have to look that one up and check it out. Also music and more, especially when it's about love or strife, is really where you find reference to Rilke in popular culture. I like what he said about fame. He said, Fame is finally only the sum total of all the misunderstandings that can gather around a new name. In a 2007 essay by Clive James titled Cultural Amnesia, a re-examination of intellectuals, artists, and thinkers who helped shape the 20th century, James explores Rilke and writes, quote, To measure the distortion of life we call fame, it's not enough to weigh the misunderstandings against the understandings, 
We have to see through to the actual man and decide whether, like so many artists, he is mainly what he does or whether he has an individual and perhaps even an expressible self. End quote. What do we really know about those we imbue with fame? Well, through this podcast, I like to focus my attention on the individual's story and less on what they do. I'm eager and excited to share a bit about this writer and his magnificent mind, especially beginning with his childhood. I mean, that's where it all begins. So we begin tumultuously. Yes, I love that word. It's hard to say, but it's, it's apropos. His mother named him Renee and dressed him in skirts until he was six or seven. Why? Well, she'd previously lost an infant daughter and transferred her grief onto her newborn son. And that's not all. He also suffered under his aloof and overbearing father's sense of personal lack. He'd wanted to become an officer in the Austrian army, but unable to succeed in his own dreams, he tried to turn his son into a soldier by sending him to military school. Wow. But Rilke, although a high-achieving student, hated it. He even described his experience as, quote, one long terrifying damnation. Remember that, because it's going to come up later in his adult life. Both parents wanted him to become a lawyer, but their meager means, even if his mother was well-born originally, couldn't afford to send him to law school. Instead, he attended several universities, loving his learning within a diversity of subjects, a lot of it surrounding art, but he never graduated from any of them. I absolutely love what he wrote about his university experience. He said, quote, and even if I never reach my arts degree, I'm still a scholar as I wished to be. <laughs> like Rilke, I love to learn. And if you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing you do too. Anyway, maybe it was because of going back to his childhood and his experiences that evolved and made him the man he was. Well, this burdensome childhood experience, like feeling the demands to make up for his parents' personal sense of loss, influenced Rilke to become a wanderer and a social misfit, known to often dress in black. I mean, today we call that emo, but I don't know what you would have called that in the uh, turn of the century. Anyway, he was reluctant to cling to personal relationships, too despite a wide circle of well-born and cultured acquaintances and admirers throughout Europe over the whole course of his life. This sense of solitude, solitude comes up a lot, was a central characteristic of his life, obviously. He was very introspective, and this sense of self-examination, often critical, showed up in his writing. So you'll hear that word again, solitude, because it really was a central characteristic of his life. But paradoxically, even in favor of this solitude, he loved to love. He loved genuinely, albeit not excessively or necessarily patiently. And he also saw the imperfection of human wanting and desire. But he loved to love. 
His poems and letters often address love and relationships. In Letters to a Young Poet, a great book, if there's nothing else you read by Rilke, check out Letters to a Young Poet. He wrote of lovers not as a union, but as, quote, two solitudes, there's that word again, that protect and border and greet each other. In his own relationships, he maintained an autonomy and in permeability. He said, I beg all those who love me to love my solitude too, for otherwise I would have to conceal myself even from their eyes and hands. Like a wild animal hiding from enemies bent on its capture. Yes, Rilke loved solitude. He also wrote, quote, your solitude will expand and become a place where you can live in the twilight, where the noise of other people passes far in the distance, end quote. And of nature, now remember this, he's referring to nature. He says, if there is nothing you can share with other people, try to be close to things. Things will not abandon you. The nights are still there, and the winds that move through the trees and across many lands. Everything in the world of things and animals is filled with being, of which you are part." End quote. I don't know if he knew in the future that there might be a negative connotation with things in our consumerist, materialistic society, but he did say that there's nothing you can share with other people. Try to be close to things. Think of nature. All the same, women were charmed by his wit and literary gifts. It seems he was especially attracted to strong, independent, artistic women and supported their work, but also held them at a certain distance. A particular woman who actually made debut one day on a beautiful gray sponge was Lou Andreas Salome. I really like her. In 1897, Rilke met and fell in love with this wildly traveled and intellectual woman in Munich. She attracted many great artists, writers and thinkers, including Friedrich Nietzsche. She was very influential to Rilke. He changed his first name from Rene, remember, his mother named him Rene, to Rainer at Salome's suggestion. His relationship with this married woman, yes, she was married, he even traveled with Lou and her husband on two extensive trips to Russia, lasted until 1900. Their relationship was unconventional, but intimate. She was his muse, and he suffered pangs of rejection, then happily settled into a lifelong correspondence with her. After their separation, Salome continued to be Rilke's most important confidant until the end of his life. Salome, having trained from 1912 to 1913 as a psychoanalyst with Sigmund Freud, would share her knowledge of psychoanalysis with Rilke. He did eventually marry, which also proved to be an unconventional union. He married the sculpture artist Clara Westhoff, whom he met while staying at an artist colony when he was 25. Clara enthusiastically subscribed to Rilke's definition of marriage. Quote, this is his definition of marriage the guardian of the other's solitude. There's that word again, solitude. He thought of marriage as a collaboration, not a sacrifice, and strongly supported and encouraged her as an artist. 
They even had a daughter. Their daughter, Ruth, was born in December of 1901. And in the summer of 1902, Rilke left home and traveled to Paris on a pilgrimage. I mean, some people might look at that and judge him. Some think he abandoned his wife and daughter. But after Rilke left for Paris, Clara placed Ruth in the care of her wealthy and supportive parents and went on a pilgrimage of her own to Egypt and other places. Like Rilke, the adventurous Clara had a fascinating life. Through periodic reunions and a depth of correspondence, they maintained what Rilke called an interior marriage until their youthful experiment eventually grew estranged. But the relationship between them continued for the rest of his life. A mutually agreed upon effort towards a divorce was hindered by the fact that Rilke was a Catholic, albeit a non-practicing one. Rilke loved artists, literally. I mean, his wife was a sculptor. And aside from the mention of Lou Andreas Salome, he'd had a turbulent affair also with the painter Lou Albert Lassard as well. But he also loved the art itself, which influenced his poetic writing style. He spent several years in Paris, 1902 to 1910, in fact, and found modernism very stimulating. Next time I go to the art museum, I'm gonna explore modernism, such as Rodin and Cezanne. Rilke worked closely with the sculptor August Rodin, and for a time acted as Rodin's secretary, lecturing and writing a long essay on Rodin and his work. Much like a mentor, Rodin taught him the value of objective observation, which transformed Rilke's poetic style from the subjective and sometimes rhythmic or rhyming language of his earlier work into something quite new in European literature. He would travel Europe from Austria and Germany to France, Italy, and Switzerland, accepting the accommodations made for him by willing acquaintances, or, if not available, renting congenial and threadbare living quarters. Many influential aristocratic and bourgeois patrons adorned him with attention, and he enjoyed their generosities. But he himself would choose to live a very materialistically simple life, outside of high society. From 1911 to 1919, if you know your history, this is during the First World War, which interrupted his travels and he spent the greater part of the war in Munich until he was called up at the beginning of 1916 to undertake basic training in Vienna. And that's where this trigger back to his days at the military academy come up. Influential friends interceded on his behalf. He was transferred to the War Records Office and was soon even fully discharged from the military. But this traumatic experience of military service reminded Rilke of the horrors of the military academy and negatively influenced him to actually go into a deep depression and silenced him as a poet for many years after the war. It wasn't until the early 20s, the 1920s, that he began to write again. While in Switzerland, he stayed at Museau, an estate purchased by Swiss merchant and arts patron Werner Reinhardt, who then invited Rilke to live there rent-free, one of those very generous bourgeoisie kind of uh, patrons. While many poets would often have full-time employment, Rilke didn't balance his art with such additional demands, so he lived mostly in poverty, as I'd mentioned before, dependent on the good graces of people like Reinhardt 
And it was at Museau during a few weeks in February of 1922 that Rilke completed many of his greatest and best-known works. Again, I'm not going to get into the minutiae of all the titles of his fantastic work. He was known to even carefully prepare his working station and dress for the occasion in suit and tie. Now, that's not what I do when I record a podcast. I don't dress up for it. Um, But apparently, he prepared his working station very astutely. He even had a special pen, one pen set aside only for writing poetry and heartfelt letters. Another pen, maybe for writing bills. Aside from his formerly published work, he also was known to spend a great deal of time and attention writing letters to friends and patrons and fans. Yeah, lesser known people, I guess that's what patrons are, but um, his letters were thoughtful, intentional, and devoted, and would later be collected and published after his death. In 1923, he began suffering strange maladies and increasingly struggled with health problems. He'd even taken leave to stay at a nearby Swiss sanatorium in the mountains, and I've often wondered about what these places were because we don't hear that term used today, sanatorium. So I did a quick search to learn that these common medical facilities were popular during his time, mostly um, associated with the treatment of tuberculosis, or what we call TB, in the late 19th and early 20th century before the discovery of antibiotics. These sanatoriums were often in high altitudes or even in arid desert regions for the cleanliness of the air. Many have since become general hospitals or even holistic wellness retreat centers today. While he was at Museau, he would sometimes entertain guests. A rumor developed surrounding his ailing health. The story goes that he was gathering roses in the garden for a visitor. The Egyptian beauty Nimet Iluaibe. Yes, I looked her up actually, and you can find images of her if you're curious. Nimet, spelled N-I-M-E-T. Nimet Iluaibe. And that, anyway, he pricked his hand on a rose's stem. I'm going to say stem as opposed to thorn because I recently was tuning in to a botanist friend of mine who was describing the difference between plants and thorns versus prickles. And apparently roses don't have thorns. Roses have prickles. (laughs) I feel like I've never lived at all since I've only ever thought of roses having thorns. But anyway, I digress. This small wound, from a prickle, failed to heal. It grew rapidly worse as his arm swelled and his other arm became affected. Whoa. Well, whether that's true or not, shortly before his death, Rilke's illness was diagnosed as leukemia. He suffered ulcerous sores in his mouth, along with pain in his stomach and intestines. Rilke died on December 29, 1926, in the Valmont Sanatorium in Switzerland and was buried in Raren, Switzerland on January 2nd, 1927. Along with the rumor about his death and gathering roses for Nimet, it is believed that his favorite flower was actually the rose. As his own epitaph, he chose this poem. Rose, O pure contradiction, desire to be no one's sleep beneath so many lids. Wow. 
Through my research on Rilke, I was able to curate a lot of interesting tidbits about his complicated and colorful life. Lee Siegel, a journalist, wrote about Rilke in an article published in the Atlantic Monthly of April 1996. I highlighted these words by Siegel that I feel really summarize perfectly my own purpose in creating this podcast. Siegel wrote, quote, We must understand one another or die. And we will never understand one another if we cannot understand the famous dead, those fragments of the past who sit half buried and gesturing to us on memory's contested shores. End quote. And yes, I know what he's saying when he speaks of understanding the famous dead, about history. But I also believe it's just as important that we need to understand one another, famous or not. Anyway, Rilke understood this too, and he actually wrote of Apollo by depicting a second century ruined statue of the Greek god. Apollo was the god of music and leader of the muses, if you're not really brushed up on your Greek mythology. This is an actual ruin, and it's housed in the Cleveland Museum of Art, although I don't know if it's currently on display, but to think that Rilke was inspired to write this poem, yes, I'm about to share it with you, about this sculpture of marble, I hope my eyes can scan it in person one day too, as Rilke's eyes did. Here's that poem, titled Archaic Torso of Apollo. We cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit, and yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside, like a lamp in which his gaze, now turned to low, gleams in all its power. Otherwise the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Otherwise this stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur, would not from all the borders of itself burst like a star. For here there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. and understanding more about others, such as Rilke. Perhaps we can understand ourselves better too. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of A Beautiful Gray Sponge. I look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening. <laughs>